with the Tombstone Blues off of Highway 61 Revisited. See you next week, Ann Arbor. Stay tuned for The Living Writers Show. Pretty things I'm bad now, of course The city fathers, they're trying to endorse The reincarnation of Paul Revere's horse But the town has no need to be nervous The ghost of Bill Starr, she hands down her wits To Jezebel and Nun, she violently knits A bald wig for Jack the Ripper Who sits at the head of the Chamber of Commerce Mama's in a factory, she ain't got no shoes Daddy's in the alley, he's looking for food I'm in the kitchen where the tombstone blues The hysterical bride in the penny arcade Screaming, she moans, I've just been made Then sends out for the doctor who pulls down the shade And says, my advice is to not let the boys in Now the medicine man comes and he shuffles inside He walks with a swagger and he says to the bride Stop all this weeping, swallow your pride You will not die, it's not poison Mama's in a factory, she ain't got no shoes Daddy's in the alley, he's looking for food I'm in the kitchen with the tombstone blues Well, John the Baptist, after torturing a thief Looks up at his hero, the commander-in-chief Saying, tell me, great hero, but please make it brief Is there a hole for me to get sick in? The commander-in-chief answers him WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is the writer Kwame Dawes, visiting from South Carolina. Author of 11 collections of poetry, um, beginning with the collection Progeny of Air, which won the prestigious Forward Prize in 1994, and including Midland, which won the Hollis Summers Prize, judged by Ivan Boland. Also author of fiction, you've you've written and are writing novels, Um, a play called One Love, a children's book, literary criticism, including Bob Marley, Lyrical Genius, which is um, sort of the definitive work about Marley's lyrics and works to do some of the things that um, folks have done with Dylan and Leonard Cohen and... um, 
Lou Reed, sort of putting lyrics in the context of poetry and serious art. Um, So numerous books. Also, that's not all you're up to. (laughs) Um, Born in Ghana, raised in Jamaica, you are now the distinguished poet in residence at the University of South Carolina, where you've been teaching for 14 years. And Oz is the director of the South Carolina Poetry Initiative, a statewide initiative for poetry, and the University of South Carolina Arts Institute as well as the programming director for the Calabash International Literary Festival. So, um, welcome. It's so fabulous to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Really wonderful. Well, as we normally do, um, as is indicated by the introduction, um, there's there's all kinds of stuff we can talk about in the next 45 minutes, but we'll start where we usually do with the show, which is I'd like you to read. If you'd read a bit from um, Midland, Mm -hmm. the book that won the Hollis Summers Prize, um, that would be a great way to start us off. Great. The poem is called Hometown. I followed you to this characterless place. You call it home. The rough parcels of open acres, a solitary barn in the distance, and the ubiquitous dwarfed bushes of tobacco. I have grown accustomed to the flatness of the land, the clean horizon, and the musty armpitting of our vulnerable bodies. The sky is barefaced and incapable of duplicity. You are weeping because this landscape is a monument to your miseries, the things you never speak about, not till now, anyway. There are dead bones in the soil, you tell me, and these paths scarring the fertile earth sometimes whisper the magic of sorcery at nightfall. Already the urge to move on. We are failing at love again, our bodies turned from each other, and there is stern regret in your eyes when I look I feel as if I'm being crowded by by alien tongues. What you say to this earth is not easily translated. In the coolest corner of this restaurant, smelling heavy of two-day-old collards and the generation of sweat in its walls, we pull at the white flesh of battered fried fish. I carry my mind like a shield before me, a badge to protect me from the distance of language. We say little, rehearsing the embarrassment of your crying. The bare landscape outside the windows is perfectly balanced. The weight of an old oak on the right, tilting. The bland sky, upright again. Wonderful. Thank you very much. You have um, a memoir that you've written, and part of it is excerpted in the current issue of Granta magazine, and it begins, My father left me no nation. It's hard to blame him for this, but he could have offered me more sustained concepts of home and nationalism. Um, And then you begin the next paragraph, I am Ghanaian. This is my legal label. Um, Your father, however, was Jamaican, and although you were born in Ghana, you grew up in Jamaica. That's correct. And uh, have called South Carolina home for 14 years. Um, I'm wondering how you think about um, this journey Throughout the di- diaspora, it's it's a similar journey to um, the journey that many ancestors of African Americans have made. But you have made this as a contemporary live person from Jamaica, right. from Ghana to Jamaica too, and, 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 and under quite different circumstances. Exactly, <laughs> under extraordinarily different circumstances. <laughs> yeah. uh, but 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 the 
it's an interesting um, way of seeing things because I think um, I've always felt as if I was wherever I was, um, I belonged somewhere else or I was going to go somewhere else. It's a really weird sensation because I was born in Ghana and happily a Ghanaian in that sense. Um, but my father was Jamaican and he spoke a lot about Jamaica and sort of created this wonderful story, this this mythic story of this landscape and 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 always said we're going back, you know. And so even though we were born there, my mother was Ghanaian and so on, there was this sense that we're going back to Jamaica. And we'd visited Jamaica when I was very young and you know it it, it was full of the the way family legends are created. We'd talk about it and so on. So even in Ghana, even though I was there, I had the sense of going away from there, not quite being settled there. And then we moved to England, <clears throat> and clearly we were not staying in England. This was in transit. It just it should have lasted three months and ended up lasting almost two years. And we were stuck in England um, to wait before we go to Jamaica. And so clearly that sense of being uprooted and, and not sort of located, had settled into the mind. So by the time I got to Jamaica, then th- there became this other problem of going back to Ghana. So there was this sense that we are in Jamaica, but we are alien in Jamaica. And we are home in Jamaica, and we are learning Jamaican, but one day we'll go back to Ghana, because Ghana is, is the home and the Mecca. And I think this has been perpetually in me. Now, this is a peculiar thing, because I just finished reading some passages that my father wrote some years ago. and who Your father was also a poet. And my father was also a poet. And, and he had written this um, a few day, years before his death. And he was just making notes, and I discovered these papers, and I was looking through them. And the odd thing is, he's, he talks about being in that odd position as well, because the truth is, my father was not born in Jamaica, but happened to have been born in Nigeria, where his parents, who were Jamaicans, were missionaries to Jamaica, to, to Nigeria. And so when he was about three or four years old, he moves back to Jamaica. But in, in these notes, he says, he, he tells a friend that he, when he moved to Jamaica, he had a British accent, and that he's never felt quite at home in Jamaica, that he feels that he is coming from somewhere else and there's a place that is outside of him called home. And so it was a bit of a joke, but, but then it, it, it hit me in this really weird way that he's been carrying this mess all this time and then I've inherited this idea. But, but I don't see this kind of limbo thing as, as particularly unsettling. I, I find it, um, I find it uh, wonderfully um, uh, um, energizing because I, I feel able to connect with different spaces. It's an it's a cop out opportunity. One once when one lives through life, when one doesn't like where one is, then one says, you know, one day I'll just leave. I'll just go back to Ghana, <laughs> you know, back to Jamaica. Back <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and which is which is clearly my position now in South Carolina, where I've lived for almost fifteen years. You know, fourteen years this is about the same amount of time my father sort of lived in Ghana. So, but. But I still have the sense that I'm Jamaican, um, I'm, I'm, I'm alien, and yet I'm, I'm, I'm rooted in, the, in, this, in this South Carolina landscape. So it's a condition, and, and, and I think it's an increasingly more common condition for so many people um, um, uh, uh, these days because of how travel is, is so easy and, 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 and um, the world is shrinking. Yeah. 
Do you think that that creates, I mean, if you look at the body of your work, um, it's located in many different places and from many different spaces. And so this feeling at home and at the same time dislocation or uprootedness or, or notion that there is a back somewhere, we're going back to something or, uh, or a series of places. Um, do you, how does that disconnectedness work with the connectedness in your work? Yeah, it's a really good question. I was just reading a, an interesting interview with Mina Alexander, the Indian um, poet who, who, who lives in New York. And she said for years she always wondered, she always feared that because she moved around so much, um, she couldn't be a writer um, because writers are rooted. They need, they need a home, they a need landscape. A home. They need a landscape, yeah. you know. All the great ones, Whitman and, 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 and um, Faulkner and so on, these are rooted. <clears throat> Un- until until the Rushdies came along and said it's hip to be from nowhere. You know, you know what I mean. Um, or, or Walker says, you know, the ocean is my landscape. You know, so but so she said she always felt that way. But for me, it's really weird because I've I've never had that kind of anxiety, um, and I think there's a reason for that because I think I, in a sense, artists look for. Um, places to anchor their sense of place and their sense of, of, of identity. And, and sometimes we construct this, this, this anchor, uh, this, this, this stone that is going to hold us. Um, we construct it, we invent it, we make it what it is. Um, and, and sometimes it's something that, that triggers art for me. And, and for me, um, what is my, my anchor is, is, is rooted in Jamaica in many ways because it's rooted in, in reggae music as an aesthetic. In other words, reggae music is, is at the core of who I am. It, 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 it came to me at a time when I was, I was becoming a person. Um, and, and it defined my, my childhood, my life, my relationships with people. It was the mu- it was my soundtrack. Um, but, but it also is an international soundtrack and it's an international soundtrack that locates itself back in Jamaica with absolute arrogance and, and assurance and, and for me that is a, a, a wonderful place of connection but at the same time it's an aesthetic with a wonderful range of, of, of possibilities in terms of idiom, in terms of spiritual ideas, cosmologies um, in terms of allusions and it's also embracing so many other cultures and so many other values and so on and can take them in chew them up and, and spit out something that we call reggae. So for me it becomes a wonderful metaphor and it gives me permission to enter any space and to tell that narrative. And it's rooted also in the diasporic idea, the idea of, of journey, the idea of, 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 of creating a, a culture and a sense of self that is rooted in this notion that we come from a, a, a sort of historical journey that, that has spread around the world. So all of these elements, I think, are part of what allow me to feel very comfortable engaging with cultures that may ostensibly not be my own um, b- without, without any hesitation, without any, any, any fear. Well, and it, it seems to me that um, that experience of diaspora is not unique to um, people who come from Africa. No. It's, I mean, everyone in this country, actually, right. with the exception of a very small minority, yeah. have come from somewhere else. And I wonder how it is that um, 
when we talk about diaspora in the U.S., we talk about it um, generally not with respect to um, the dominant culture in the U.S. That's that's sort of an unmarked one. Um, And so there's not an acknowledgement of um, the fact that that we're made up of a multiplicity of experience and journey. Um, Do you think that that's changing as we're traveling more for everyone in general? I I think there's a reason why this does not happen, because the usefulness of diaspora is a very interesting thing as it relates to art. Um, look, what we should, what we, we have to be sort of very clear about is, and, and understand, I think, faces that the idea of diaspora is not the same with each group. In, in other words, um, the very name African American contains within it the capacity of, to resist, the capacity for resilience, but also to a terrible tragedy, the, tra- the tragedy of not knowing. And what I mean by that is um, we, we speak very confidently of Italian-American or Irish-American, and we speak of German-American and so on and so forth. Now, the, the truth is that Germany and Ireland and, 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 and you, know, the, you know, the Anglo, Anglo-Americans, and so on, these are very relatively small places um, in comparison to many of the nations of Africa. But if I said I was Ghanaian-American, the presumption would be that I was born in Ghana right. and, and, and live in America. If I said I was, I was, I was Irish-American, the presumption would be I was born in America with Irish heritage, but be, and the reason is that the, the 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 whole process of slavery and the Middle Passage and so on was systematic about trying to erase any memory of place and connection by taking away people's names, by taking away people's languages and so on. So the sense of connection to Africa becomes a leap of the imagination because it has to be Africa. It can't be it can't be Ghana, it can't be Senegal because we are not sure where we are from. Because our our name is Jackson, our name is Dawes. This means nothing in terms of connecting it with the names in Africa. So 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 the idea of diaspora in that sense becomes an opportunity and this is where it becomes positive for the imagination to create something and therefore it gives us the chance to say I who live here in Charleston South Carolina I'm connected with somebody who lives in Cuba because we none of us are quite sure anyway but we are connected in some ways and it therefore it helps to dismantle the kind of tribalism that divides us and the tribalism that we see in being French American or Irish American and so on. So, so, so I think, I think those, the narratives of diaspora vary, depend, you know, in, 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 in certain ways. And there's a unique experience for the African American because the African American has to construct a memory to the extent that it reaches the absurd and fascinating level of roots where we, we, we now know that Alex Haley may have invented many of his, his memories. But, but this is not an absurdity, in fact. This is actually an understandable kind of thing that would happen because he's creating myth, a myth upon which to found one's identity and place. And that myth is part of what enlivens the art. And for me, it, it's an opportunity, um, but, but it's mixed with a certain kind of a tragedy. Although I can say, I know my grandparents in Cape Coast and, and so on. So my Ghanaian connection is, is so old and it goes all the way back as far as I, I wanted to go. But, but on my father's side, that, that line... That stops. We don't stops. know where it's... We, we don't know. 
Well, that's a good place to sort of pause and reflect. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is the writer Kwame Dawes. Since the beginning of modern civilization, generations have witnessed and inherited the only conflicts of world wars. But behold the marriage supper of the lamb and bridegroom unto his bride. Then shall the earth's children know the true expression of one love. Then Mother Earth shall honeymoon in peace, forever eliminating aspirations, lust, and anguish of wars and rumors of wars. That's Damien Marley that we were just listening to, and we started the show with Bob Marley singing "Jamming," which, um, from your, um, from oh gosh, I've read so much lately. I'm not sure exactly where I pulled it, but I think <laughs> it was from either the epilogue or the prologue of Bob Marley lyrical genius. Um, you wrote that you used to sneak into your brother's room and listen to his albums, and and jamming was one that just really got you. And then when I asked you what you might want to hear during the breaks, you mentioned um, the Damien Marley yeah. confrontation. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I think Damien Marley is. It, I, I really enjoy the the Marley um, children, the melody makers, and so on, which which is not hip to do because you know everybody says you know he's nothing like his father. So, but but I like them. I think I think I like them because I think they've they've really created a um, art and they've created a career struggling with the shadow of Bob Marley, and and obviously they're capitalizing on 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 who he is, and they're trying. I mean, what, one of the things is interesting about Ziggy is that Ziggy's trying to see what does it mean to be um, a middle class kid son of a, a man who has who has made his career on being somebody from the ghetto for a working class voice and what does it mean now to want to speak about struggle to speak about issues like his father did but to do so from a position of privilege and 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 it's interesting to see how he tries to do that lyrically Damien Marley is in an interesting position too because one of the things that I find striking about Damien Marley is that he doesn't sound like Bob Marley, which which Ziggy does and and Steve does and 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 the other cats do. They 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 have the they, and if they didn't sound like him, they started to try to sound like him. Right. <laughs> there was Bob. some marketing incentive <laughs> for sounding <laughs> like that. Right, yeah, but but Damien doesn't. I mean, occasionally you hear hints of it, and so he's doing his own thing and he's doing DJ music, which is the cutting edge kind of music in Jamaica today, which was what reggae when. Bob Marley started was was about it was cutting edge it was dangerous it was it was different and so on and I think Damien has has entered that along with Steve who produced the album to create something that is great and there's some just stunning lyrics and insights that ring true they they they, they ring authentically true and he's found exactly where the artist is the artist's honest position is not 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 a posture uh, and not a front but a, a, a genuine honest position right. So, so I think that to me is what is really appealing about 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 what happens, um, what has happened with 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 Damien Marley. Well, that's a good place to sort of segue into a conversation about your book, Wisteria, mm. Twilight Poems from the Swamp County mm. Country. Sorry, um, you interviewed women in 
Sumter County, South Carolina. That's right. And have based the poems in this book on those interviews. So you're often writing from the perspective of African-American women from Fort Sumter County. <laughs> yes. Sumter County. So I'm going to get it all, all confused. I'm from yeah. down that way, and, um, and I'm, I'll, I'll just stumble now over all the, thing, <laughs> all the things from my childhood. Um, I wonder if you would read um, the poem Dem, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. Sure. Dem. Never called a white man, massa. Never called no white woman, missus. Just plain old sir and ma'am. Like I would for any soul who's got age enough to make me feel like a child. And just how daddy is like sir. How when you speak it, you think of God Staring down hard at your body, minding its own business and growing all them hairs and letting things flow inside of you. Making you feel things you never should and your mouth muttering sin all the while. Just like that, every time I would stare at the scraggly grass, dry summer bush on the edge of the cotton rose. Eyeballing a pebble sitting lonely there in the sun, just waiting for me to find it. Leaning soft against my toes, under the ragged shadow of our house, looming cool and dark, eating up the shape of a man on a horse whose eyes I can't see because I'm staring at the way the earth grows dark at dusk. Just like that, every time I spoke the word Mr. to Boss Man Creech, was like my soul tensing for a crack of its tongue, like my body saying, Yes, sir, massa, no, sir, massa, I will just step over yonder and fetch it, massa. And I could feel his eyes on my head, could tell he knew the shame of me, feeling naked there before him and all. I don't call him nothing no more. There's just man, woman, them. That's all there is. That's all. Thank you very much. Mm. So in speaking about when we began the interview, you m mentioned that your aesthetic comes out of reggae music. That's mm -hmm. what you grew up. In fact, you used to walk by Bob Marley sitting on the steps of your in your neighborhood um, while he, when he was visiting cousins or friends in the neighborhood. Um, you grew up listening to reggae music, and that aesthetic and that rhythm and that music informs your own aesthetic and your poetry. Um, and then we talked a little bit about Damien Marley and how he's doing something that's authentic and true and his own and not derivative from his father in that, but comes out of that tradition, rather. I wonder, your your personal journey has been from Ghana to Jamaica and now to the U.S., so you are African or Caribbean more than you are African-American. And in this book, Wisteria, you are writing from the voice, the perspective of um, African-American women. How do you work with that um, question or issue of authenticity right. and voice and write your poetry 
with these voices. Right. It's a, it's a very interesting thing. I think one of the good things about it is that you don't think about it when you're doing it or before <laughs> you do it, right? I mean, these are questions that didn't bother me. I didn't even think about them when I was doing it. So, so, so really what I'm doing is assessing how did I get there? Um, and especially if I think the poems are good, then I say, well, how did we get to that? How does it work? And why does it work? Um, but it's, it's, it's also not very complicated. It's complicated to me. There are a couple of things that work for me. You know, we've spoken about reggae as an aesthetic. But, but there's, for me, a functional aesthetic also, a, f- a functional sort of methodology to my art. I think that has always been there. Um, on one hand, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of story and telling the story. Um, and and, and, and on, on the other hand, I'm interested in the idea of, of, of empathy. And uh, empathy becomes a very grand idea for me, and it's something that I've written about but not published a, a lot about, but I've, I've been really developing an, a kind of theory for, for, for empathy, and I've, I've used it particularly in theater, the idea of the actor using empathy as a methodology to engage in, 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 in character and in moment and so on. But but the concept of empathy for me functions in a way that says that I should be able to ex- the process of my imagination is should be such that I can imagine what others experience and engage in that imagined moment and create something out of that because that is what I demand or that is what I plead for from my reader I want my reader who may not know who I am where I've come from or what space I've been in to to, to find themselves traveling being transported by my language and being able to empathize with what I'm doing with that art and so on so so for me empathy becomes a function of the imagination Imagination. Empathy is a function of the imagination. And, and the failure to show compassion and to feel and to empathize is a failure of the imagination. It is, it is when you say, I don't know what you're going through. I mean, the whole civil rights movement under Martin Luther King was based on the belief that with empathy, there'll be transformation. If they see us suffering, they will feel it and they will act. Langston Hughes says, they will see how beautiful I am and they'll be ashamed. Now, many in the struggle says, apparently they don't. They, apparently, <laughs> there's, there's no feeling going on out there. It's not, it's not really working. What, what's right? happening? Yeah, what, what is going on? But, but that, is what, that is what it's based on. So I say that because what happens with these stories is that the truth is that when I went to South Carolina, um, I needed to understand South Carolina. I really did. I didn't. I didn't understand. I didn't. I, I thought I did. I thought I understood this, but I didn't. I didn't. I, I'd read about it, but but I I wanted to understand that there's a peculiar kind of historian's fascination with the idea that I'm sitting amongst people who lived through Jim Crow, the series of lynchings and all that would happen. They had lived through the the, the, the the civil rights movement. They had lived through the 70s and they had come through the 80s. My goodness, they must have, they were living through all of those fantastic things. And I said, what is, the, who are they now? And what were they like then? And what was it like then? That fascination led me to say, I would love to talk to them. That was one part of it. The second part of it was, I've always grown up with the idea and the tradition that says that one has to be welcomed into a community by the elders of that community. 
And in the African American community in South Carolina, one doesn't just walk into it. No. In fact, no, it, it just doesn't work. <laughs> you just that don't way. work into any community <laughs> in, 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 the any, South. in the South. It's though. white, black. You don't just walk <laughs> you in. Don't, you don't just stroll in. And, and I was a foreigner. I was a foreigner. I went to a school. I was teaching at a school that for everybody, black in Sumter was saying, that's a white people's school. What's this black guy doing? What has he done to get that job? Right? Was there something else, too, because you're coming from Jamaica and Africa? That's oh, kind yeah. of like, and what's this African and what's or this Jamaican? African and, Jamaica, and he's probably taking the job of an African American. So there were mm. tremendous complications. All of them with valid, valid, valid reasons to, to exist. So to get involved, I went down to the South Sumter Resource Center, which is on the other side of the tracks. It's on the black side of town, Manning Avenue. And I decided to work there and to volunteer there and to do work there. And it is while I was there that I met all these people. And I, I said I would love to talk to them. And they were wonderful. They were all women, late 70s into their 80s, and, and, and a couple of gentlemen. And they were willing to talk. Into a tape and just tell me their stories, and they all said, "We've never been able to tell this story to anybody because the young people don't want to hear it." And so they told me the stories, and every night I'd go home and write poems. So for me, it it, it was both a way to sort of enter the society, enter the landscape. It was the way that I went around trying to name trees and find the names of trees, trying to to understand the smell, to know what when the clouds move in a certain way, what that means, because I knew that in Jamaica. But here, I didn't know whether it meant rain or it meant that this is going to blow over. Understanding that landscape and sort of becoming part of that, the the, the pulse of that society. And I, I still don't think I have that, but I think this process brought me closer and closer to it and to understanding it. But then it is the points of connection, because then sitting there, I was listening to stories that I know my grandmother would understand. I was listening to stories that were reflective of, of, of the journey of Africans throughout the years, and we could see that I was from Jamaica or Ghana, and they were from here, but we were finding a point of empathy and connection, and I shared that history. And so the poems come out of that. They're first loyal to the stories that they told me, but they're secondly loyal to art and to the idea of creating something that is musical, that is beautiful, and that is harrowingly um, stunning and disturbing. And I think that's what happens um, in, in Wisteria. Have you taken the poems back and read them in the community? I've done that. I've read them in the community. Um, and, it, it, and, the, and the community is large. Um, the community is not just the black folks in the community, no. but it's, it's the whole community. And it, it has been very interesting. In fact, what was done with this, this, this collection, we, we, we created, I worked with a musician called Kevin Simmons who composed a whole suite of music, a wonderful, wonderful orchestration. Um, and we worked with musicians, singers, um, it was a, it was a string, string quartet, um, two wonderful sopranos, um, and, and baritone, uh, mezzo soprano and so on. And, and, and all of this was done setting some of the song, the poems to music and then I would read over it and so on. We did a reading like that and this was in Colombia but people came in from all around. And um I'll never forget that first night we did it. The, 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 it was it was very strange because we started this thing runs for about an hour and 10 minutes. We start and n- there's no pause, there's no applaud, nothing, silence for the entire time. But halfway through it, I finally look at the audience. And in front of me, I just see people weeping, literally. And it it, it stopped me because I, I really hadn't realized that something was going on in there. And then at the end of it, the reaction was fascinating. Um, it, and I didn't, yeah, I, I, I didn't feel 
something I had achieved something, but the, the, that their voices had achieved something. And to me, that's the most powerful, powerful experience. Well, we'll let that settle for a little bit, too, yes. and take another short break. It is the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. This is The Living Writer Show. And my guest today is Kwame Dawes. We'll be right back. To the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Kwame Dawes. We're talking about all kinds of things. Um, most recently, his book Wisteria. Um, we started out the show with a poem from Midland, and um, we've also been winding our way through Bob Marley Lyrical Genius, which is a nonfiction book about the lyrics of Bob Marley and, and contextualizing them as the art that they are. That song we just heard was the beginning of One Love, um, which is a Marley song, obviously. It's, it's, it seems silly to sort of announce that because it's, <laughs> it's sort of self-evident yeah. at this point. But um, I wanted to play that because um, in speaking about some of Marley's later work, you say in the book, um, Bob Marley, Lyrical Genius, um, in many ways, Marley is even questioning the power of love to transform, the power that he sang about in One Love. The pattern of hope was one of acceptance that eventually good things come out of crisis. The reality, according to Marley, is that too many people are busying themselves shattering the dreams of those who dream. And we spoke a little bit, or talked a little bit in the last um, segment of the show about um, Langston Hughes and um, how the, the the notion is that if folks can empathize, then change will come, mm-hmm. um, that there's great power and empathy and imagination and love to transform. Mm-hmm. And just before the break, you told us about the um, setting to music of Wisteria and the the community broadly defined, that's the white community, the black community of Columbia, South Carolina, sitting in the audience and just sort of in um, speechless, weeping kind of um, silence, taking in what this book is and what it is as a live performance. Will you talk a little bit about the power to transform or the failure to transform? You spoke about it as a failure of imagination before, but, but where's... Where's the place of hope and, and where is hope getting marginalized as art and therefore not as transformation? Right. Well, that's a really interesting question because one, it's, it's, you know, one wants to think that art somehow um, has this, this, this transformative capacity. And, and, you know, great writers, many great writers, uh, you know, there's, there, there's just no shortage of them who say art does changes nothing. Or, and, and then there are those that say art is, is the most transformative thing in the world and so on. Um, I, I, I clearly believe that art 
can transform. Art has some place in the way that a human being behaves. And, 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 and I'm more comfortable looking at that than rather than talking about social systems that change. But I think the individual is transformed by art. And, 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 and I say this in, in some very basic ways. If, if, if a person is able to engage in art and therefore connect with somebody else through the function of the imagination, something human has, has taken place. And, and, and to me, that is, is, is a grand and beautiful thing. When that, that humanity is taken place through the process that I call compassion and empathy. And so, so I think that is, that is wonderful. What happened to Bob Marley, I think, is that he, later on, his lyrics become increasingly wary. There's a sense that, um, that the weight of what people do to other people became such a burden for him. Um, but, but remember that even as he's singing these songs, you know, they, they are songs, you see. They move us and we dance. So, so when he sings in, um, in, in, in Babylon's system, he's, and Babylon becomes so present in his later songs, right? And he says, the Babylon system is a vampire sucking the blood of the sufferer, building church and university, deceiving the people continually. They, they, you know, they are just racketeers, thieves and murderers. They, they suck in the blood of the sufferer. Tell the children the truth. Tell the children the truth. And then he says, we've been trodden on the wine press much too long. Rebel, rebel. But what a sweet groove that song writes. Okay, so, so in the middle of this incredible sort of diatribe of, of, of clear anger, it is so sweetly articulated, so, so beautiful, and, and yet so movingly done that you realize that when he says in the song Trench Town, we free the people with music. Oh music, oh music, oh music, oh my head. He says, music is, 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 is my is my transformation. Music is what keeps me going. So, so the process of art, and this is not new, this is Langston Hughes, this is everybody saying, look, art becomes a way to articulate experience and to transform experience by taking experience and turning it into something beautiful, even when it's a painful experience. And I think for me, that is one of the, 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 the important functions of art. Now, I, 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 do, I do not imagine that one sits down and thinks of this when one begins to write. I don't. What I do when I begin to write is to take experience and see if I can capture the best language, take the best language to, to capture it and to express it. And if I do that well, then something I think that is transformative has taken place. So I, I begin micro and hopefully that spreads into the macro. Into the macro. But, but who knows, you know. Well, I guess that's what the critics have to tell us. <laughs> they tell us that you have been successful. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> you manage that quite well. Mm. Um, when you you gave a lecture recently about Bob Marley, and um, you mentioned in it a class that you teach that's a, a, an intensive four-hour for three weeks sort of deal, and. Um, Bob Marley's made it ever. I mean, Marley is, um, you know, reggae is um, almost pop culture sort of all over the place, and at least in the Western world. Yeah. And you get some um, beach boys from Charleston, um, you know, coming over from the Sigma Chi house, let's say, and uh, taking your Bob Marley course. Um, these are not folks who um, 
are coming from working class backgrounds, which is where a lot of Marley is coming from. Right. Um, they're not even black. Right. Um, these are white boys from Charleston and who party, and they're like, yay, cool party music. And you mentioned in this talk that a little ways into the course, they're like, do we have a right to this music? Can we listen to this music? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they come out of it in the end, evaluating the music as art and finding a place in it. Right, because they're evaluating themselves. Because that experience that they have is a very interesting thing because many of them actually have a sense that they're involved in in something not just hip not just partying and sort of tied to the weed thing and so on, but they're doing something that is radical, but they don't quite get it, and they, they, they're only catching, capturing snippets of the thing. But when, when I tell them the narrative of the diaspora, the narrative of the middle passage, the weight that bears on the song, suddenly they begin to say, my God, is he talking about us? <laughs> you know, is he so angry at us and so on? But I think they find their place because of art. I think it is is that they find that they, 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 after they've removed themselves from being accused or once they've resolved their role in what Mali is declaring, then they say, but, but, but he's never, he's not telling us that we should, we should run from this, but that we should find where, what role we can play in, in sharing his anger or sharing his concern and so on and creating something else. But I think part of the reason is that it undermines the easy reading of Mali as just a party kind of voice. It undermines the idea that we don't have to hear him. It's like Caliban. He's just grunts and sounds, but great music to move to. And so then suddenly the sounds have meaning. And then now we have to contend with that meaning. And and for me, I think that's really what happens with many with, with many of them. And um, I, I, I think for me, that is the good news when I when I when I teach when I teach that course. That's the wonderful news. Well, and I think that's the wonderful news with um, with your poems and your stories is that um, if people will sit with them, you know, like so this is a three week course that's four hours a day that starts at eight o'clock in the morning. And um, so there's time to kind of go through stuff. I mean, art takes time. It takes time. It yeah. takes time. Yeah. And um, I sort of wonder and worry that in the current context um, of the U.S. where everything moves very quickly, that the time is not something that we have. Yeah. And perhaps that's one of the things that's getting in the way. But I'd like to end the show because we are, sadly, coming to the end. I could Shocking. sit here all day that? long. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming to the end. But I want to mention before we um, take off that you have oodles of projects in the works mm. and um, write, writing in multiple genre. The, the Calabash Literary Festival is just a major, major happening down in South Carolina and... Um, and it's international. Folks come from all over. Yes. Yeah. It's in Jamaica. Oh, in Jamaica. Yeah, in Jamaica. I'm right. sorry. I'm confusing then with the, the, the poetry, 